when really anger and irritability are beautiful emotions that are emotional taps on the shoulder. They're misunderstood, but they are the body and mind's way of saying, my boundaries are being crossed here. Too much is going on and there's too little self-care happening. Welcome to Setback Stories. I'm Chelsea, your host, here today to bring you on an adventure full of lessons and stories about me, my guests, and the times we've had to move backwards before moving forwards. So, whether you're exercising, commuting to work, or have some free time, we hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Setback Stories. I am thrilled to be hosting a special guest, specifically a mental health professional, on this topic of building resilience against compassion fatigue. I've known her since grade 10 when she started working as a registered social worker at my high school, and I've had the pleasure of working with her as she supervised the Jack.org chapter, which is a mental health club and organization in my high school. Since then, she's been such a great mentor to me in all things mental health advocacy, and her name is Angie Holstein. Hi, Angie. Hi, everyone. How are you? Doing well, hanging in there in these difficult times for all of us. For sure. Well, thank you so Mm -hmm. much for taking the time to be here today. I'm sure you're busy. No problem. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have you. So before we get started on today's topic of resiliency towards compassion fatigue, would you like to introduce yourself? That would be great. So I'm really happy to be here today talking about compassion fatigue. Um, Right now, my work is as a practicing full-time psychotherapist in Toronto. My My specialties are in trauma. So I'm working as an EMDR certified therapist. And as well, I have some specializations working with teens and a particular interest in South Asian mental health. I have, previous to this, um, had some work experience at a private girls' school and 11 years at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, working with youth, children, and their families. That's awesome. I love hearing about people's journeys and career journeys. Mm -hmm. It just makes me so proud of everyone and So thank you for that spiel. And if it's okay with you, um, I'm curious to know, how does your profession differ from other types of mental health professionals, such as like clinical counselors and psychologists? Because this is, I find that when I'm talking to my friends, this is kind of a a type of confusion that comes up. Yeah, that's, that's a great question, actually. So when we think about the different types of mental health specialists, Mm -hmm. we think about psychologists as providing treatment. And they also do psychometric testing. So if someone's having some difficulty either with learning or with mental health challenges, social challenges, you can see a psychologist to get an understanding Mm -hmm. in terms of what's happening and what that diagnosis might be or not and what any recommendations are in terms of treatment, accommodations with your schools, recommended work with your families or any additional resources that might be helpful to help change the problem. Psychotherapists and social workers, we primarily provide assessment and treatment. So we Mm. can't diagnose, but our focus is around giving a clinical picture around what might be happening by understanding all domains that are happening in somebody's life. So work, family, school, whatever those domains, domains might be for that person. And then providing the treatment. So treatment being, you know, some sort of therapy, 
helping people get connected, working with their families, again, with the effort of making things better. So whatever the problems are, how can we shift and make those better? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to add psychiatrists to that because that is also a very commonly confused um, role in mental health services. So again, you know, psychiatrists are there as medical professionals to diagnose and primarily they focus on medication management. So some psychiatrists do provide treatment, but their primary focus is assessment diagnosis and med management. That's awesome. It sounds like you all work together to help reach your patient's goals. That's right. Working together is really important in the mental health field. We should not be working in silos. We should be absolutely talking and working with each other so we can help someone get better. Yes, I love that collaborative approach. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As I've mentioned, today we're talking about compassion fatigue. And Mm -hmm. the reason I chose this topic is because I've noticed that it's been popping up in the media more than ever now. I think the most obvious example is with COVID, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, doctors and nurses are burning out from taking care of their COVID patients day in and day Mm -hmm. out, even at nighttime. And even if we're like not doctors, I think Mm -hmm. everyone can experience this phenomenon as long as they find themselves in a caretaking capacity. For Mm -hmm. example, um, I know me and my friends have sometimes find it it overwhelming uh, to practice allyship for marginalized communities, such as the Black Lives Matter movement or Stop Asian Hate movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it does become overwhelming to see the site of unfortunate news circulating around, you know, Instagram or TV, even though we do want to help. And I would love to talk to you today about how we can, you know, better take care of ourselves so that we can better show up for people when we do experience this phenomenon. And I figured that with the work that you do on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've encountered this phenomenon in your career and that you have strategies to, you know, combat it um, and prevent it. So my hope with today's episode is to equip people with tools to combat or increase their resilience towards compassion fatigue so that we can better show up for our communities. To get there, do you first mind defining what compassion fatigue is? I'm happy to. And and I do want to add, Chelsea, that, you know, the point about that we're all experiencing this in the pandemic is really Mm. important. So that it moves the discussion beyond and in addition to healthcare providers or caregivers. Right. This is a global phenomenon right now because we're all caring for each other in so many more ways. Like we're caring for our families, our communities. We're bringing in trauma input. So when you talk about Black Lives Matter, Stop Asian Hate, all of these initiatives, we're bringing in the stress and hardships of other people. For sure. And where does that stress and, and that trauma go? Mm-hmm. Right. So I really love that you frame that, right? So that this can be a topic that's applicable to everybody. Because often it's considered a topic for only healthcare or people caregiving the elderly family members. Exactly. Exactly. So I think it's good to sort of understand what compassion fatigue is. And I'm wondering if it's okay just to, you know, talk a little bit about what compassion is. Because it's a bit of a mystery. Yes, please. So if we think about compassion, compassion is something that we all need. You know, we talk about compassion for others, but compassion for self is so important as well. Mm -hmm. Right. And compassion is this idea of being able to feel and acknowledge distress together Mm -hmm. with an action step that's oriented towards alleviating it. 
So can we identify pain and hardship within ourselves and self-soothe? Can we, and, and compassion, the act of that for other people is the idea that we are acknowledging and holding their stress and then wanting to alleviate it, to make it better. So it's the idea of suffering with, whether within or outside. And, and compassion, as hard as that sound, it, it is the essence of how we get a sense of belonging. And it keeps us working together and it actually brings peace. And again, we need this compassion in order to digest, really metabolize emotional pain and heal from it. So then when we think about compassion fatigue, it becomes the cost of caring, right? Because if we're absorbing trauma and hardships of other people and this emotional distress of other people, we're going to absorb this trauma. And without, and often what happens is we don't have a plan to deal with it. We want to help, mm-hmm. want to help, help, mm-hmm. help, be there, be there, be there. And we absorb, absorb, absorb. And without a plan, we just keep getting filled up. Like, where does the release come from? Right. And is I believe that's also the reason why it's called, I know there's a synonym for it, right? I think it's called like secondary traumatic. Yeah, vicarious trauma. There we go. There we mm-hmm. go. That makes sense. The cost of caring. That's right. So vicarious trauma, <clears throat> excuse me, is the ability, is what, what happens when we start to live the trauma that we're absorbing. Mm-hmm. We feel it and have trauma responses from someone else as if it's happening to us. And again, without awareness, lots and lots of body awareness, emotional awareness, and being able to name and notice that this is happening, then again, there's there's a cost to that in terms of being filled up with no release. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Yeah, that makes sense. And what ends up happening is our, you know, where we started, which is our original goal and motivation which, to, to help people and to care and, and feel compassion for another person, it eventually ends up where we can't, it decreases our ability to empathize with other people because we're emotionally and physically exhausted. We just can't sustain. Mm. And that's what compassion fatigue is. We become fatigued in the cost of caring. Yeah. Oh, I thank you for sharing this because I've like in hindsight, I've definitely experienced this like even in middle school when I was just trying to support my friends. But at the time, I didn't know that it was a thing. I didn't know that helping others um, sometimes doesn't help myself. So it's awesome that we're increasing awareness about this today. That's right. I really like that you're identifying that in youth as well. Mm-hmm. Like You know, I remember even this is a long time ago, but having a friend who had a lot of emotional needs wanting to be, be a good friend and be there and be there until it would result in anger and irritability and all these other things that I didn't have language for. Right? Yeah. Oh my and gosh. Young people, yes. We don't have language for that. Totally. But we're changing that. That's right. Yes. <laughs> so um, I'm curious to know, how does compassion fatigue relate to or differ from burnout? I think that's a great distinction and really important to to add to this topic. We think about compassion fatigue if we start to kind of keep the thread of the cost of caring, right? And remembering that compassion has compassion fatigue is action oriented. We want to alleviate the distress in another person. Burnout, you know, think about burnout as being worn out. This mm. can happen in any profession and for anybody. So burnout is like this slow burn that it gradually emerges over time. 
It is more easily identified, right? Because it often is triggered based on clear triggers that happen on work, you know, from work and and our personal life. Right. So thinking about burnout, you know, this happens to us and most people, like anybody who's gone through school will Mm -hmm. even identify with this, right? Like we're overworking long hours, not having breaks. And, and I think women are particularly, you know, vulnerable to this because we're socialized to be givers. So we don't know, you know, often how to say no or to delegate. Um, we can identify burnout when we're procrastinating and avoiding. And again, mm-hmm. that whole being perfect, right? Just doing and doing and doing. And, when, and, and the distinction as well with burnout is that we let go of joy. So we work and work and work. And we let go of other things that light us up. So hobbies, time with friends and family, and really just being out of balance. So what I'm hearing is that um, if you experience compassion fatigue, you're likely burning out from caring too much, um, caring for others too much. Um, But you don't necessarily have to experience compassion fatigue if you're burning out, you know, from school or work. That's right. They yeah. can be two separate things, right? right like burnout right. is like overworking, doing it all yourself, being perfect. Gotcha. Not having joy. So it can happen just within another person. Whereas compassion fatigue, there are, it's the it's the feeling towards another person. Compassion, bringing in their hardships and trying to alleviate that. Okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And I know we talked a bit about like. Um, how, you know, as a middle schooler, mm-hmm. um, not knowing how to support her friends back in the day, um, like I myself uh, would find myself feeling em- emotional and like just angry at the fact that I couldn't help my friends to the best of my ability without uh, not sacrificing my own mental health. So I'm curious to know about what other signs and symptoms should we look out for when we are experiencing compassion fatigue? Yes. So let's, let's talk about emotional symptoms. Like I wonder if any emotional symptoms come to mind, even in that example that you have for middle school. Feelings of like helplessness Mm -hmm. and this, this constant feeling of just being on call for my friends at the time, Mm -hmm. because, you know, of course, at the time I thought my friends, my friends were my world. My friends still are my world. And of course I want to do anything that I could to help them. Yeah. So just this feeling of just being on call and sometimes feeling helpless because I, at the time I had tried all that I could to help, help my friends, but sometimes it seemed like it, it wasn't enough and I had like no more to give. So maybe, um, that's right. And that's um, anxiety. That that anxiousness, like trying, 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 and nothing's working. Mm -hmm. And then I try to figure out all the ways that I could do something different to make it better. I try and try and try. So one of the very common ones is, is anxiety. That's a, that's a really important marker. We start to feel more anxious. So we're living in our nervous system, start to become wired into fight or flight responses. Another really common symptom is feeling dread. So moving from a place Mm. of like, I want to help somebody to losing that passion. And now I'm dreading having to care for this person. Oh, yes. This is overwhelming. Your fulfillment, that's diminished, right? 
Oh, yeah. And with that, I'm sure it comes with guilt at times. Tremendous guilt, right? So guilt and shame sets in. I'm doing something bad. I am bad. Those are the messages we get from guilt and shame. So when we start to feel those feelings, and we'll feel any feeling but shame, this is where anger will start to come in. So we start to attack self, right? So we start to get really self-critical. You're bad. I'm not good enough. How could I not? And then we start to notice, and, you know, I really want to highlight the irritability and anger. And again, mm-hmm. especially for women that, you know, that we're socialized not to get angry. That's an, that's an unacceptable emotion for women. When really anger and irritability are beautiful emotions that are emotional taps on the shoulder. They're misunderstood, but they are the body and mind's way of saying, my boundaries are being crossed here. Too much is going on and there's too little self-care happening. Yes. Yes. I love how you reframe those emotions because I definitely think they're stigmatized, but in reality, they're just a way to remind our bodies to, you know, escape from a situation that our bodies don't want to be in. That's right. That's right. So if we can look at emotional symptoms as taps on the shoulder, instead of becoming terrified that they're here, what are these emotional states trying to tell us Mm -hmm. in terms of either burnout or compassion fatigue? These are very common symptoms for compassion fatigue. And then the body will give you messages as well, right? So when we think about symptoms, they're just messages from the body that something needs attention. One of the number one ways we will, you know, that tap comes in terms of physical symptoms is sleep difficulties or insomnia. Oh, yes. Right. Right. You know, and I want to highlight that, especially right now with the pandemic, you know, we're globally experiencing tremendous sleep disturbance and insomnia. There's just too much overwhelm, too much caring. So too much trauma happening. So you can really start to notice if your sleep is being affected, it means that you're holding stress that hasn't been released. And it's coming out at night when we're supposed to process all the things from the day. So there's an interruption to the natural brain systems that that help us sleep, process, self-soothe, wake up refreshed. That's not happening. Yeah. And without like adequate sleep quantity and or quality, I'm sure that creates ripple effects into the next day of feeling even more tired and more or highlighting the signs and symptoms that we're talking about. That's right. And that's the loop in terms of the emotional symptoms, which get worse. Because we need sleep in order to regulate our feelings. So when our sleep is disturbed, the research says automatically mood will go down and anxiety will go up. Even if you get one more hour of sleep, you'll notice a difference. Mood will go up a pinch, anxiety will come down a pinch. So that's that's a very significant symptom. The other thing people start to feel is headaches, changes in weight, so weight loss or weight gain. You know, weight gain can happen from, um, you know, anxiety can reduce in appetite and anxiety can also create, you know, overeating in order to soothe those feelings, just trying to boost, you know, good chemicals in the brain, which chips and chocolate can, can do in the moment. That's fair. And then what you'll see is overall fatigue. So again, you know, connecting that back with compassion fatigue is emotional and physical exhaustion. That makes a lot of sense. 
So now that we know like what to look out for, what happens if we leave compassion fatigue and the signs and symptoms left unaddressed? Like what are the consequences? So, you know, this is where we see people in different professions. You know, certain professions are vulnerable to, you know, compassion fatigue and burnout that weeds them out of the field. So teachers, journalists, um, people in, in health, the healthcare profession, both mental health care workers as well as, you know, healthcare workers in general, nurses, social workers, doctors. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's left unattended, what happens is depression and anxiety and even post-traumatic stress disorder. We were talking about vicarious trauma earlier, right? And what those conditions cause is a depression of the immune system because our nervous system is part of all of this, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're living in fight or flight, our ability, you know, our immune system just goes down. It's kind of like if you think about exams, like that's a good way, sometimes a good marker for people. Remember having exams and then all of a sudden at the end of exams, you get sick? Yeah. Yeah. So that's an example of that. Our immune system gets depressed because of all the late nights and group work. Well, Again, you know, if this is going on chronically for people, it's left unattended, they get sick. And it affects your ability to do your job or even keep your job. Also, the other things that happen when left unattended is our relational abilities. So our marriages, our relationships with our romantic partners, our relationship with our children, co-workers, it really becomes isolating. And you're also going to see an impact, of course, on productivity and just overall general well-being. Right. So what I'm hearing is that compassion fatigue obviously can contribute to poor mental health, but Mm -hmm. if you don't do anything about it, it can lead you into the zone of mental illness. It can lead to mental illness and remembering that it can also lead to physical illness because people, that is a misconception. Gabor Mate wrote a beautiful book called When the Body Says No helping us understand that the mind and body are connected. So so emotional, you know, conditions, mental health conditions can make us sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I love how you raise that because I'm always interested in the in where physical health meets mental health, but you can't really as we've illustrated, you can't really separate the two because they go hand in hand. That's right. That's right. And we often want to and sometimes I joke like we have a neck that connects our head and our bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Why would we ever think these are separate? 100%. So as we know, the symptoms of compassion fatigue and the consequences, if you don't do anything about it, do you seem unhealthy? They are unhealthy. But I'm wondering, are there any benefits to experiencing compassion fatigue or ways to use it to our advantage? For example, I've heard that compassion fatigue may, quote unquote, help doctors turn off their emotional brain and therefore turn on their rational brain needed to make life-saving decisions. So are there any other advantages? I mean, I think that's a great question, actually, because sometimes we think of, you know, conditions like compassion fatigue, depression, anxiety, all these different emotional stressors as catastrophes. Right. And we also flip that to say, okay, These are messages coming from the body and the mind that are our natural alarm system within our bodies to say we are becoming overloaded. Something is out of balance. 
know, when, when compassion fatigue hits, it is also an opportunity to regroup, take a look at what is happening, what is out of balance, what can I shift? Because again, we don't want to just shift things in the moment or for a job or for a situation. These are life skills, right? In terms mm-hmm. of being able to prevent and, and take care of and, and learn about compassion fatigue so we can prevent the intensity or the chronic nature of it. This just reminds me of, okay, so I just finished a semester of anatomy. And of course, we learned about the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic mm-hmm. nervous system. And as I was learning that chapter, I just couldn't help but think, wow, our bodies are so smart. Like if we're in pain, we're going to try to alleviate that pain um, as soon as possible. And I think this just goes to show that compassion fatigue is the same type of signal. Yes, it's very unfortunate that you're experiencing all these emotional and physical symptoms and pains. But like in a good way, it's kind of good that you're experiencing that because it's telling you to do something about it. That's right. That's right. So we can look at these conditions also as an opportunity, right? Compassion fatigue is an opportunity to shift and care for others in a healthy way. So just thinking about our natural alarm system in our bodies, I have heard that, you know, component around compassion fatigue and can that help doctors or different professions that work in life-saving moments? Yeah, let's let's go back and remember that compassion fatigue is about emotional and physical exhaustion to the person. We want to consider any other ways that that person can do their job. We need them to do their job effectively, right? To think and feel in an effective way in a crisis. And I absolutely relate to this in moments when I have been faced with somebody saying, you know, I'm not safe today and I'm I'm suicidal, right? I'll have to my alarm system blazes, I got to take some breaths. And, and what, what I've learned and, and what I know that is part of the system, it doesn't work perfectly in the mental health and healthcare system, but compartmentalization, right? So the idea, can I be practicing compartmentalization versus compassion fatigue? So can I suspend my emotions for a moment in order to do my job, focus on my job. As long as I come back to the that stress and that trauma later. So for example, when I worked in the inpatient unit at CAMH, we had a practice, and again, it you know wasn't perfect, but it was absolutely set up for us that after there was crisis, if there was violence or someone was suicidal or there'd been trauma on the unit, we would debrief together so we could be together mm-hmm. and hold in a compassionate stance what had happened, how it affected us so that we could release and debrief that stress and trauma. Mm, I love that strategy. So yeah. That's, I really encourage a difference between, you know, allowing burnout to happen for doctors, sorry, compassion fatigue, allowing happening for doctors versus intentionally holding, suspending the experience and trauma that they're having in that moment that they need to do their job, but make sure you come back to it after. That's the difference. Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that distinction. That makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because if you want to make life-saving decisions, you, you and your mind, your body and your mind have to be physically present, and that right. they have to be energized. That's right. And and we think about compassion fatigue again. That it it actually affects 
empathy, right? The ability to empathize and feel another person's feelings. Well, we want our healthcare providers to feel another person's feelings because healing happening happens with the relationship, right? It's part of it. So again, we want to safeguard that and, and be able to help healthcare practitioners find tools that they can compartmentalize, save a life, but take, mm-hmm. but they need caring afterwards. Right. Yeah. Oh, I, I like this idea of compartmentalizing. I haven't really heard it before. Earlier, I wanted to ask you, what is the difference between compassion and empathy in, in your opinion or in your words? So that's a really, that's a really, really important question. And I'm glad we're coming back to that. So again, compassion fatigue, compassion, sorry. Remember at the beginning, we talked about compassion having an action, right? A desire to alleviate, feeling the feeling and wanting to alleviate that in another person. Empathy is the ability to relate to another person's pain as if it's your own. Like I can feel the feeling within you, but it doesn't have the action component. Yeah. And that's why empaths are actually really vulnerable to compassion fatigue. If they don't have a plan to manage it, because they feel and feel and feel until it starts to become tiring. Right. Right. So the actionable item is a way of them releasing all that emotional work. That's right. So they feel like they're caring and helping by, you know, helping that other person. Just like you said, in middle school, you would talk to your friends and think about solutions and try to be there, right? It's got an action to it. Wow. This, this makes so much sense now. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Cause I've always thought they were interchangeable, but that tiny, dis- tiny, but significant distinction is huge. Yeah. So now we know what compassion fatigue is. Let's talk about ways we can combat it or prevent it. Absolutely. So, so would it, why don't we talk about the reset first? So taking all, you know, sort of understanding, because we need to understand what this is in order to identify it. And it's hard to identify it when we're in it. It's really hard. So, you know, again, this is such an important topic because it generates awareness what are the ways that I can identify this condition happening to me? And again, you know, there are very manageable ways to reset, right? So looking at, at these symptoms as, as an opportunity to reset. So I know we, you know, we talk a lot about this analogy of, you know, the airplane analogy. Sometimes it gets a, a bit overused, but I think for a reason, because it's so wise in terms of, you know, if we've ever been on an airplane and we've been prompted that if in the event that the oxygen masks drop, who do we put an oxygen mask on first? Ourselves. That's right. <laughs> so we need to put the oxygen mask on ourselves before we can ever put that on for another person. And that benefits everybody. That saves lives for everybody in that moment. Exactly. Same thing when we're taking care of ourselves and we're wanting to care for other people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, dealing with compassion fatigue really is about setting an intention, identifying, being aware, identifying, creating a plan and sticking to it. One of those ways of sticking to it is being able to connect with other people around what's happening. So not getting isolated in this feeling by yourself, Mm -hmm. share with another person, a colleague, someone that you, you know, in your family, anybody, um, talking to a mental health professional or your doctor. And that kind of goes back to the point that as unfortunate as, 
as unfortunate as it is that we're all experiencing a global pandemic, there's still beauty in that because we all un- all kind of understand what we're going through since we're mm-hmm. literally all living through the same COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And these are, these are the reset strategies apply right now for everybody. Compassion fatigue mm-hmm. is rampant right now because we literally are caring for each other in so many different ways, much more than before. And we're also bringing in a whole bunch of trauma, right? So again, you know, creating a plan, sticking to it. And these are life skills, you know, there's, there's, they're not just for, you know, people with who are experiencing compassion fatigue, but listening to it with a lens of like, you know, healthy, healthy life skills. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go to sleep first, because it is the very first intervention I go to as a therapist with people is let's get your sleep in, in order, at least a little bit better. So that mood can go up and anxiety can go down and the stress in the body can shift. So getting restful sleep, getting help for that if it's becoming problematic and chronic. Um, So with doctor or mental health professional, regular exercise and exercise doesn't have to be like, you know, a hit program or, you know, kickboxing. It can be very simple, even 10 to 30 minutes walking you know, yes. um, getting out there with a friend for a run, playing on the playground, playing sports. It can be, I know those are hard things to do right now, <laughs> yeah. um, but just committing to a regular exercise because that's going to start working with your body's natural system to start to release stress mm-hmm. and help with your sleep. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. The other things are about, you know, emotional awareness, increasing emotional awareness, even if it's to notice and name the emotions that you're experiencing every day. Journaling about your emotions. Healthy diet is another one, right? So we we Mm -hmm. feel, you know, mood and food is very well researched. And and if we can increase the amount of, you know, healthy uh, food that we're eating, it does affect our mood. Mm -hmm. I talked about developing and safeguarding joy. So hobbies that are different from work or caring for others. Any positive coping strategies, anything that helps you stay in the moment, like brief meditation. So we know from the research that even five minutes of meditation a day is equivalent and restorative to a 30-minute nap. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even know that. I know. That blew my hair back when I read that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. I've like... I've kind of fallen off the track with my meditation group. So I'm definitely going to restart that today now that I know that fact. So thank you. For sure, Kelsey, even five minutes. The other part of the plan that I'm going to add and really highlight right now, especially with the global pandemic, you know, we're scrolling, you know, I read an expression, I can't remember which article it was, but it was called doomsday scrolling. Oh, yes, I've heard of it. (laughs) Yeah, you've heard that too. Mm -hmm. So really managing how much trauma is coming in to our brains. So thinking about and really, you know, being intentional about how much we're looking at the news or social media, because with social media scrolling, we, we don't have the choice of what's coming next. Things kind of just smack us in the face based on whoever's post it is that we're looking at. So really thinking about, you know, trauma from media input. Another kind of simple ways is, you know, we're all watching a lot more TV these days. We're all on our screens so much more. Can part of the plan be watching a comedy instead of true crime or, you know, 
Criminal Minds or Special Victims Unit? Can we think about other shows, like really being intentional about what shows we're watching? Something mm-hmm. that, you know, gets us laughing versus crying or stress. The other things are just, again, you know, learning about compassion fatigue and definitely, definitely if it's persisting, reaching out to support groups, support networks, and we'll talk about that at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, connecting with your doctor, just having the courage to talk to someone mental health mm. professionals as well, just anybody. Okay. Those are some of the things to reset. So now that we talk about what we can do in order to reset our compassion fatigue, when we do recognize it and find ourselves in the midst of it, are there any proactive tools that we can implement to increase our resiliency before compassion fatigue arises? Or mm-hmm. are the strategies the same, different? They're going to overlap, definitely. So I think, you know, rinse and repeat as well from the the reset. I think all of us need a a stress management plan in life. Like we all need to be having strategies um, to manage emotions, stress, our physical health. That's really important. You know, prevention, you know, thinking about prevention also in terms of just negative feelings. Like every day we feel negative feelings. That's normal. Mm -hmm. Um, there's no way to get rid of that. And in fact, again, we want to remind ourselves that negative feelings or distressing feelings are just a way of alerting ourselves that maybe something needs our attention. But we don't want to just be in a life that's about managing negative feelings, right? Just reducing negative feelings. We need to be intentional and, and safeguard joy. Have I, have, do I have a plan for joy today? What is that plan? So, again, you know, when I talk about reducing stressful workloads, like these are all just life life skills that we need to do to prevent um, compassion fatigue. We also need to safeguard those hobbies. So time in nature, just playing, like even as adults, we need to play. Um, Scrabble or, you know, time with friends and family, kids, just have joy every day. Yeah, we need to protect our inner child. That's right. That's right. So I can't stress enough about managing stress. You mm-hmm. got to find a plan to manage stress. We all are going to have stress. It's a normal part of life. Mm-hmm. And how much you have it is your choice. Right? What you gotcha. do with it just becomes your choice. So I'll talk a little bit at the end about, you know, a, a really amazing resource called, it's a book called Burnout. And it's written by Emily and Amelia Nagowski. And they talk about this completing the stress cycle every day. So on their, you know, some of their blogs and and in the book, if people end up reading it, it's about every day intentionally stress will build. How do we release it from the body every day? We need to complete that stress response and, and invoke the relaxation response in our bodies every single day. And I love some of their strategies in the book. So some of these are overlapping from what I said before, but they're things like, you know, meditation, even five minutes mm-hmm. Being with a pet. We just got a dog and oh my goodness, just leveling <gasps> up to like even dogs in the park. Like if you don't, yeah. them, right? just, just being around animals, um, a five to 10 second hug. I know that's hard right now because we're being yeah. told to stay away from each other. But I know. <laughs> Someone in your bubble, just hug it out every day, yes. five to 10 seconds. So simple, right? To complete this response. Um, definitely connect with people who love and adore you, right? Feel value. 
um, laugh, right? So we talked about that earlier. If it's not with another person, can a show kind of invoke all the great, great releases in the body and the brain that come from laughter? Mm. I remember when I was traveling in India, um, my family's in India and we would visit every, every year. And when I was a kid and I would see, um, you know, walking on the beach in the morning, there'd be these groups of people who practice something called laughter, um, yoga with laughter. I can't remember the exact oh, expression because it's not. I've heard of it. Yeah. And they, Maybe, yeah. they stand in a group and look at each other and invoke laughter. And I'm like, oh, what's happening? That's amazing. <laughs> that's so weird. Oh, wow. But I now it up. Yeah, now I get it as an adult, right? That, you know, this is part of the science. There's, there's science to laughter in terms of releasing stress. Wow. So anything that's not holding stress, releasing stress every single day. Gotcha. And another one is about sleep. So we talked about that, right? And you also said you're going to notice that in your own life as well. Mm-hmm. Taking breaks is really important. We, we as a society yes. are really primed to be in growth mindset all day long. Mm-hmm, for sure. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm just giggling a bit because uh, Madison, Kendra, and I all want to do um, an episode on hustle culture and talk oh, about yeah. how uh, in, in this day, uh, we're all about that go, go, go attitude and we never really allow ourselves to just take a break. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I need more of that. It becomes a badge of honor too. Like I just work four hours straight. Bang! I put the badge on. It's yes. I'm part of our culture. I love the topic that you're going to do. I'm going to make sure you let me listen to that. <laughs> Alert okay, me we'll to do that it. one. Um, so definitely taking daily breaks, not just like white knuckling it till your vacation time. Yes. Everyday breaks, and then use your vacation time. I can't tell you how many people I see in my practice. And it's one of the things I ask about. When was the last time you took vacation from work? I hear so many times, oh, I've got a ton of bank vacation, but it's not the right time. It's the right time. Just take it. You've got to take it. Right? Um, Again, we talked about meditation, journaling. The other thing I would, you know, really, really stress is learning body and emotional awareness, which, again, we've talked about. Mm-hmm. So even just a couple of times a day, just dropping into your body and saying, what is happening emotionally and in the body? Can I scan for any tension? So one of the ways early when I started to learn about, you know, compassion fatigue, when it was happening to me in my early days as a social worker, mm-hmm. I started gritting my teeth when I was driving home from work. Oh, so I put a little stop sign yeah, you know, I had someone help me with this, a very seasoned social worker who asked me about this, you know, where, where's the stress going? Yeah. And she said, put a little like sticker or stop sign on your dashboard so that you can, it's a, it's like a reminder to unclench the jaw, breathe a little more deeply, release the stress from a really stressful day. Mm-hmm. Right. So lots and lots of body awareness, emotional awareness, learn that language. I'm going to drop into my body a couple times a day. I think right now as well, like really focusing on what we can control, right? So we can't control lockdowns. We can't control not being able to be with each other, but we can control making a nourishing meal, organizing the closet, time outside, right? Yeah. Just finding those things, elements of control every day. Um, Boundaries is a big one as well. 
So really learning healthy boundaries as well as for women, we're particularly susceptible to this because we're taught to just give and give and give, sort of socially primed for that. So really learn how to say yes, no, and later, and don't get overloaded Mm. and accept anger and irritability when they come because it's just a sign that your boundaries are being crossed. Yeah, communication is definitely key. That's right. That's right. So those are some of generally the ways I, you know, I think prevention can happen. Over caring for people, um, like when we feel like we got to be there for everybody, maybe shifting some of that up to feeling satisfied with caring for other people by maybe smaller acts of kindness mm-hmm. instead of sort of being there, feeling people's feelings and absorbing them too much and trying to help too much. Just taking an inventory of that. See if there can be satisfaction in just those small things, maybe helping a neighbor out or shoveling a driveway, things that don't have an ongoing nature. That's that's important to notice. Mm-hmm, because those small actions will build up. They do build up. I feel like I've learned so, so many tools and strategies just in this moment, and I'm so excited to implement them into my daily routine. Do you have anything else that you would like to Ad that we haven't covered so far, or are there any resources that you'd like to mention or shout out? Sure. I mean, I think we covered a lot today. Again, I can't say how many times mm-hmm. we've watched such a good topic, such a such a good topic <laughs> for people to listen to right now. It's applicable to yes. all. There's a couple of resources I would shout out to people. Um, if you want to learn more about compassion fatigue, there's a great organization called compassionfatigue.org. That's the the project, but that's the mm-hmm. website. And their mission is really to promote awareness and understanding of compassion fatigue and how it affects caregivers. And and even though that word caregivers is in there, remembering that we're all having elements of caregiving that's increased in the pandemic. So this applies to you. This is not separate for people only looking after, you know, their elderly um, parents or healthcare workers, it, it, it applies to everybody as well 100%. as those more vulnerable people. Right? Yes, right. So there's some great resources there. I'd also, you know, give a shout out to this book, Burnout. I, I really liked it as reading it just as a woman, you know, and a mom. I have, I'm a mom of three lovely children and my caregiving kind of extends in lots of different ways as a daughter, a mother, um, a wife. And I, I really love the book. Again, it's by Dr. Emily and Dr. Amelia Nagowski. They're sisters who wrote the book. And their book is really, you know, it's it's very um, accessible, right? So the first chapter is about what is this stress? What is stress in our body? And second chapter is like what to do. So here's what it is. Do this. I sort of love that, that sometimes we just need somebody else or a guide to be able to say, okay, try these things instead of coming up with our plans all by yourself. Right. It's so, practical. Exactly. So, and then the book later, it, it, there's a lot of validation in the book around, um, you know, she, the, the book gets into, you know, feminism and the impact of the patriarch. So that's a bit political as well. So if that's not your jam, it's okay just to not read that, but it does really validate, I think, for women, this kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, term that they coined called human giver syndrome. <laughs> and they write it a bit in, in a funny way, which I, I loved. It's like human giver syndrome 
especially for women, is that we're supposed to give and give and give and look calm, sorry, be calm and be pretty and ask for more. (laughs) (laughs) And I wow, I I think that is so bang on, right? Mm -hmm. It's how we're kind of primed to not have boundaries. Yeah, I see that. And then we wonder why we're depressed, anxious, and angry, but it's not okay Mm. for us to be angry. So lots and lots of validation in terms of how we're set up to do that. And not to to say that we need to be victims to that, but we need to be empowered in that. Yes, no, Mm -hmm. later. Complete the the stress cycle every day so that you can love and care in the ways that you want to. Mm, So that's a big shout out. Yeah, big, big shout out for that book. Um, And the other one, another really big shout out is my favorite researcher in compassion, self-compassion. Her name is Kristen Neff, and her website is selfcompassion.org. And so we can't just, again, manage negative feelings and identify compassion fatigue. Every day, can we have a moment of self-compassion, bringing compassion in for ourselves, remembering that compassion is needed to, to heal distressing emotions, trauma, emotional pain. And her website has some amazing tools from her research so you can actually take a light, you know, it's a, it's a Likert, part of her research Likert scale. So it's a test on your own self-compassion. Mm-hmm. How self-compassionate am I? And then there's different exercises, different meditations that can help just bringing you to a place of loving kindness and self-compassion every day. Mm-hmm. I love that we're talking about self-compassion because... Um, yes, you can tell me to try out all these tools, but I'm sure that like not all these strategies are going to work for me and that it's going to be, you know, a ride or a challenge or a journey to find out which of these tricks that you've just taught us all works for Mm -hmm. me and that it's okay if I like make mistakes in doing so. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Just having some grace and space for myself. That's right. Grace and space is a lovely expression, right? Grace and space. Amazing, Chelsea. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. I'm just, I'm just in awe and this conversation is definitely going to ruminate with me today and beyond today. And I'm sure it will resonate with a lot of people since it's such, mm-hmm. since compassion fatigue is such a relevant topic for these times and beyond. So I want to thank you for your time again, Angie. It was so lovely reconnecting with you. You've been such a great mentor to me since grade 10 and I'm happy that we're continuing the conversation on mental health because we could always use more of it. Absolutely. Well, I I really appreciate that you asked me. And I'm just so proud of of how I've been able to see you kind of stay with your initiatives and persevere, deal with setbacks. Thank you. And I'm just so proud of you. Thank you so much. That means a lot. You've done amazing. I love I love all the things that you're you're thinking about in terms of topics. I love the topics that are already on the the podcast site. Just beautiful job, everyone. Oh, thank you. That means a lot to me and my team, Angie, for sure. With so much going on in the world, this was a much needed episode with psychotherapist Angie Holstein. There is a lot to unpack, so let's dive right into the takeaways. Number one, let's talk about compassion. As Angie mentioned, compassion is the ability to feel and acknowledge the distress of another person. Unlike empathy, compassion is accompanied by an action step to relieve such distress. 
Consequently, compassion fatigue arises when we continue to attend to others at the expense of our own health. Number two, it's easy to think that healthcare professionals are the ones who are most at risk of compassion fatigue, but it's important to understand that anyone can experience it. Acknowledging that we are all vulnerable to compassion fatigue is the first step to recognizing the signs and symptoms in ourselves. Number three, compassion fatigue can show up both emotionally and physically. Emotionally, we might feel anxious, angry, irritable, dreadful, guilty, or shameful. Physically, we might experience sleep difficulties, headaches, weight loss and or gain, and fatigue. Of course, this isn't an exhaustive list and may differ across people and situations. If left unaddressed, our immune systems can weaken and render us susceptible to mental and or physical illnesses. Number four, while these symptoms are unpleasant, it's comforting to reframe them as taps on the shoulder, as Angie puts it. Symptoms are just our body's way of telling us to take a step back and take care of ourselves. Number five. Practicing everyday healthy life skills helps us become more resilient to compassion fatigue and act as reset strategies. This includes, but is not limited to, talking about your emotions to your friends, family, or doctor, improving sleep quantity and quality, exercising, increasing self-awareness via journaling, staying present through meditation, being intentional about news consumption, communicating your emotional capacities by saying yes, no, or later, and safeguarding hobbies that bring you joy aside from caring for others. Number six, if this episode hasn't stressed it enough, you cannot take care of others well unless you take care of yourself first. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Setback Stories. We're always looking for new topics and guests to bring on the show and we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to DM us on Instagram at setbackstories or email us at setbackstories at gmail.com. Finally, we're seeking ways to grow and improve our podcasting game. If you can, please leave us a review. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so that you will never miss a bi-weekly episode from yours truly. I'd also like to give credits to my team, co-producer and co-writer Madison Wong, and technical producer and editor Kendra Tam. There's so much work that happens behind the scenes, and I can't thank you two enough. Till next time! Hi there, this is Kendra, the editor of this podcast. Welcome to the end of the episode. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that we usually have a blooper here, but we didn't actually have any bloopers this episode, so I didn't really have anything to put here. But I did have to cut out a lot of Chelsea's minimal encouragers, like her, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, right, mmm, because she was doing a lot this episode and it was kind of becoming a bit much. Uh, so instead of a blooper, I've compiled like 30 seconds of no encouragers from just like the first eight-ish minutes of the recording. So, yeah. Enjoy. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Oh, for sure. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm.